We'll be in 2 Kings uh, chapter 13 uh, this morning. We just have two verses that will be our text verse, although we will take, as we go through this uh, thought this morning, we will reference some of the passage around uh, the, these two verses, but uh, we will just look at 2 Kings chapter 13, and we'll begin in verse 20 and read verse 20 and 21 together. Uh, the context that I want to give you for this is uh, we're still talking about Elisha. You remember last week we talked about Elisha who brought a man to life, or rather a boy to life, uh, certainly using the power of God. He was not doing it on his own power, but uh, he, he was uh, used by God to bring that young boy to life. Elisha had an interesting ministry because he met Elijah. You remember Elijah? He met Elijah and actually... Uh, they, it's believed that he probably served with Elijah for several years. Um, and then at the end of Elijah's life, which we understand Elijah was never, he never died. He actually was just taken away. He was taken away by the Lord. I'd like to, I'd like to be gone that way one of these days. I'd rather not die. Wouldn't you? It'd be nice if we didn't have to die. He just would take us away. And uh, there, there seems to be a promise in the Bible that could happen if it is in our lifetime that there's a rapture that takes place. But nonetheless, Elijah was taken away. And Elisha, the man in our text that we're talking about today, Elisha asked for a double portion of that power from God that Elijah had on his life. And Elijah was a very powerful man of God. But Elisha, if you go look at the story, it's interesting. We, I know more of Elijah because he's a name that I just naturally I tend to be a little more familiar with. But the balance of the stories, Elijah is only in a couple of stories. And there's powerful stories, don't get me wrong, but you look at some of the stuff Elisha's messing with, wow, it'll mess with your mind, the stuff he's dealing with. And this one is one of those stories too. But now we're nearing the end. In fact, we're actually in our text, we're actually past hit the end of his life. He's dead at this point in the story. And you say, well, why are we talking about Elisha? He's dead. Well, you're about to see Elisha had that kind of power of God on his life that even after he's gone, he's doing something. I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you're able to. In 2 Kings, and read with me, 2 Kings chapter 13, I begin in verse, thir uh, verse 20, 2 Kings chapter 13, beginning in verse 20, and I'll read down to verse 21. Verse 20 says, And Elisha died, and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. And it came to pass, they were burying a man, that behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Now that's something else right there. I don't care who you are. That's some power. Let's pray. Father, please show us that this power that we're seeing in this story is power that is provided to us through our Savior Jesus Christ today. Please revive us again. Please bring us to life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I was inside in the kitchen, and Vanessa had just decided to leave. I don't remember what she was, where she was going, what she was doing, but she was pulling out of the, backing out of that garage, and uh, there was a crunch. And I said, something ain't right. Something ain't right. So I went on out there, and um, <laughs> I, I went out there, and uh, she sa I said, what happened? And she was already out of the garage this time, kind of looking like no problem. And she said, well, I did something, and I don't want you to know about it. 
And uh, <laughs> what happened was she had, we got this, these side mirrors on her car, just like most cars have, and she's backing out, and she had sideswiped the one on the driver's side, and she was pulling, because he's on the left side of the garage, and she'd hit that thing and backed that thing up, and it was, it was okay. I mean, the, the mirror had fallen out, we put it back in, and the body of the thing was kind of cracked, but it, it, it held together. It was ugly, but it was okay. And uh, so we went on, we went driving the car. And then later on, a couple, I don't know, a couple days later, I decided I'm going to drive the car for some reason. Usually 99% of the time she's behind the wheel. I never even sit in the thing. But she, she, I needed to drive it for some reason. So I sit down in the car, and the mirror was there, but it was all kind of cattywampus for me because she's different than me, so I got to kind of adjust it a little bit. And it got to where I couldn't move it. It was like, because it's got one of these little power things, you know, you push the button. Some of y'all have that in the car. And it just wouldn't move, so I was... I said, well, I've got it good enough. So I started riding down the road, and I looked, and I still couldn't do it. So as I'm riding down the road, I roll the window down. It's like, I'm just going to nudge it a little bit. <laughs> well, she failed to tell me that she had put tape on it, <laughs> which is why it wouldn't move. So when I nudged it a little bit, that joker went flying. It was gone. Whew, it was out of there. At that moment, I gave up on that side mirror. I gave up on it. I ordered a replacement. Yes, I did. I took the door panel apart and everything else and put it back together, and I feel pretty proud of myself. Just, I'm, that's the whole reason I'm telling you that story. I had nothing to do it. No, there's, there's a point here I'm trying to go. I, I'm pretty proud of myself. I put it back together. But I'd given up on that side mirror. I'd give up on it. I took that piece of junk out and threw it away. Then it's gone. It's whatever, you, whatever they do with that. It's good riddance to it. But you see, I think that some of us feel like we're the side mirror that's been broken and begun to get useless because just a big old piece of plastic hanging outside of my car, you can't see anything in. I think some of us start to feel that that's the way that we are, that we're trying to keep it together, we're trying to keep appearances up, but if you were really God, knowing all the things God knows about you, this is the way we tend to think about ourselves we chuck ourselves as fast as we could. I think that's how some... And if y'all ain't there, bless you. But I've been there before. I've been there before where I just feel like, you know, God just, he's got to be done with me. He's got to give up on me. I'd give, I'm giving up on me, and I, I'm not even God. And, I, and some of us kind of get into that position. And I want to tell you that this story, I believe, gives us, gives us a, a backdrop and a reason to say this, but I want to go ahead and say this up front to you. Your God is not finished with you yet. You may be broken, you may be messed up, you may have gone too far, and everybody around you may be ready to throw you in the ditch, but your God is not finished with you yet. Know that and hear that as we continue on through this. He will never give up on you. He will never give up on you. Now, now I do understand that there is a time where God's going to say enough is enough, but I do want you to hear me loud and clear. If you are sitting in this room and you have good sense in your head and you are listening to what is being said and you understand the word of God, that God has a reason for that and he is continuing to work on you and to draw you and to invite you to be on his plan, to be part of him, to be with him. If you're not a Christian, he's not done with you yet. He's inviting you another chance. I promise you for the next 20, 30 minutes, you're going to have another chance to hear the gospel. 
If you're a Christian and you may feel like I'm too far, you're going to have for the next 20 or 30 minutes another chance to hear God speaking to you. You need to listen that God is not giving up on you. Here in Elisha that's mentioned, we see in the opening verses, opening words of this verse that we read that he's already dead. But just before this, in his life, Elisha's life, he reflected the patience of God in his life. If you go up to verse 14, Elisha's sick, it says. He, felt, he ultimately dies from this sickness. This is the sickness that he does die from, it says. And there's the king that comes and meets with him. His name is Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And what may not be obvious on the, on the surface there, but I do believe it's suggested with the tears that are, being, that are flowing, the phrase, my father, my father, that's being said there. This king, Joash, had a very warm and very close relationship with, it, with Elisha. And again, you may not think anything of that, but you need to know something about Joash. He was a terrible, wicked, evil, awful, God-forsaken king. Why in the world is Elisha spending time with this man and having clearly a relationship with this man? Because God was having patience with, this, with Israel and with her king. Here he is sick, and yes, he is absolutely godly. We know that. We know that he is a godly man. In fact, in verse 19, Elisha is referred to as the man of God. Yet he is meeting with this evil king. And even in verses 17 through 19, you can read it if you have time, he gives him strategy. Here's what you need to do to defeat your enemies. He gives that to them. In life, he's reflecting the patience of God because this is what God does. He spends time with people that are against him. He even says in Romans chapter 5 that when we were his enemies, he died for us. He loves us. He's extending himself to us. Even though you may say, well, I don't want anything to do with God. And some of you may have been there. You might even be thinking that right now. I don't even care about this. I'm just here because somebody's making me or I don't want to be people talking about me. If that's where you are, I do want you to know that God still loves you and is extending himself to you, just like Elisha is reflecting here. But he also reflects God's patience in death, which is our text. In verse 20, he's dead. He's buried. We don't know how long he's been buried, but he's been buried enough that you know later on that this, this man's body touches his bones. So it's probably been a while, at least a little bit, that he's been buried. But this burial party is there about to, this, they have this man in verse 21, they're, they're trying to bury a man. I don't know why, what all the context is. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot here, but I'm sure it was a friend of theirs, somebody that they, they cared about. They were probably doing the, the normal pomp and circumstance that would be required to bury someone respectfully in, 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 that, in that era. But something comes up. talks about these Moabite, Moabite raiding parties that they come in, they, they spied a band of men. Now, y'all just think about it for a second. <laughs> You're burying a loved one, somebody that you care about. But then just over the hill, there's coming somebody that's wanting to kill you. I, again, I hope we do it in the right way and respectful way, but I'm putting the body down and I'm going to defend myself. I think we're going to try to do that, especially in this time where they knew this was not just a random grouping of people. They had been expecting, he says there in verse 20, that there were bands that invaded the land. They were, they just people who were constantly coming. So when they saw them, they knew exactly what they were. So what do they do? They've got their, their friend that they're trying to bury, but when they spied these bands of men, they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. Now, the words that are used there, they cast him, 
they, they threw him. That's what they're saying. That's what it says. They threw him in there. There was no gently laying him down and we'll come back and get you later. There was a let's just chuck this joker in here and be done with this because we've got our lives are on the line. That's what's going on here. They cast him in there. And when it says there later on that when, they, when the man was let down, he touched the bones of Elisha. When he was let down, uh, the image in my mind when I immediately read that was he was let down. You know how like they lowered him down? Very No, no, no. Let down literally just means he touched down. That's all that means. So they threw him in there, and he's boom, body just boom, boom, boom on the floor of the, of the, of the, of the, of the, the tomb there. What I want you to see is that his friends, these people that loved him, I would imagine they did. I can't imagine that they would bury him if they didn't love him. Why well, would just let him rot in his house if he didn't love him? They loved him. They abandoned him. They gave up on him. They had bigger fish to fry, but who's present for him? Elisha. The man's dead. He's dead, but he's present for him. I, I, I think there's an image there that what, what God does for his people, he never gives up on us. Everybody else may be literally throwing you to the side. The whole world, you may even be saying, listen, I'm no longer worth anything. I'm just bumping along the bottom of the road. I'm, I'm giving up on everything. It's all given up on. I want you to know that there is a God who is present there for you, even in that dark moment. God doesn't give up on Israel. Joash's father, the man, the king here, He's worshiping idols. You can read this in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And God, as a result of that, allows Israel to be defeated by Syria. But I do want you to look with me in verse 4. Jehoahaz, that's Joash's father, besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of, Israel, king of Syria oppressed them. And the Lord gave Israel a savior. The Lord gave Israel a Savior. God lets them feel the pain of the punishment that was due them. Sometimes I think God lets us do that. I believe that. Sometimes we, we do stupid things, sinful things, wrong things. And, and, and if there's not a little bit of prick or pinch or a little bit of pain that's associated with that, Honest to goodness, I think some of there might be something wrong with you. And I think the Lord allows for that hurt, that pain to come into our lives from time to time. But he says there that even in this case where they are under oppression, this wicked king finally calls out to God, please help me. What does God do? He hears. He won't leave them. And there's a reason he won't leave. And I know I'm jumping all around this chapter, but I need you to look in verse 23. He says that the Lord was gracious unto them and had compassion on them, talking of Israel, and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, neither cast he them from his presence as yet. God's not going to ever give up on you because he made a promise a long, 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 long time ago that he would never give up on you. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall of man, in verse 15, there was a promise that was made that the serpent, which was the devil, that he would one day bruise the heel of the coming Messiah. 
But that Messiah would one day crush the head of that serpent. He also says in Ephesians, the Lord, speaking through Paul, says in Ephesians chapter 1 that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, predestinated us unto the adoption of children. What I need you all to hear very loud and very clear and very plain is that God is never going to give up on you. He's not giving up on you. He loves you too much. He's made too much of a plan. You are too important to him. I want you to hear that. He's not done with you yet. Now, again, the Bible does say at some point that's going to happen, but I can tell you, it's not right now. It's not right now. The day is the day of salvation. It is a great day to be saved. It is the day to do that. Do not delay any longer because he's still with you. He's still for you. He still wants to help you. He has not abandoned you. He has not abandoned you. He loves you. He sent his son for you. Are you dead in your sin? That Bible word for you're not saved, you're not a Christian. Are you not saved this morning? Is Jesus not your Savior? Is you, if, if you were honest with yourself, you would say, if I were to die right now, my home for eternity would be an eternal lake of fire. If that's where you are right now, why don't you dare to run to the Savior? Why don't you reach out and touch him? Here is a man who literally touched the bones of Elisha, and I know that was a man that God used, but he is, as I've told you before, he is a representation of the power of God. He is where God is, and God is, he is palpable. The Bible tells me that he is actually in this room. I know there's at least two or three of y'all that are saved. I'll count myself among the number. There's two or three of y'all, and he says there's a, anywhere there's a two or three that are gathering his name, he's in the midst. So I can tell you Jesus is here this morning. He is here. And so if you're not saved, you need to reach out to him. You need to try to grab a hold like that woman did who had the issue of blood. She had some kind of poison or disease in her blood. And what did she do? She just knew if she could just touch the hem of his garment, that would be enough. And it was. It was. We're not, we're, yes, I want to get God all over me. I want to be embra- in, in, uh, baptized and in, in, in completely anointed by the Holy Spirit. I want all those things. But let me tell you, if you are a sinner right now, what you need, you just need to touch him and let him take over you from there. If you're dead in your sins, now some of you that are saved this morning, you may be deep in your sin. You might be deep in your sin. Same advice goes, dare you, why don't you dare to run to the Savior? Again, you just need to get a touch of the hem of his garment. Yes, I know we talk about being filled with the Spirit, anointed with the Spirit, having, being baptized in Jesus, and those are good things and all things we want to, be, want to, be, want to have in our lives, that, the, that we're led by the Spirit. Those are all good things. But sometimes when you're in that deep, dark pit of sin, it's best to just say, Lord, I'm in a mess. Can I just get a hold of you a little bit? Just a little bit. Let him fix you. He'll fix you. I don't, I don't have any doubts about his ability to fix you. But sometimes where you are, instead of trying to be Mr. Super Spiritual and act like you got it together, you just need to say, I don't have it together, Lord. I need you to do something to me. He's there. I promise you. He is here this morning. You just need to touch him. That's what you must do. And when you do touch him, he always gives new life. Elijah, I already mentioned to you, he's got a double portion of the power of God that Elijah had. Elisha does have that, and that's from 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 9, for those of you that would like to look at that. 
And he does some very amazing things in his life. Resurrects a boy from the dead. We talked about that last week. But that power even continues in his death, in the text that we just read. And what happens? Here his bones are laying there, and the minute that man touches the bones of Elisha, he's revived. He's revived. He gets his life back. He has new life. It's what God said that he would do for Israel. Familiar passage in 2 Chronicles that says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If you'll reach out and touch Jesus this morning, that's exactly what he will do for you. He says that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he says we were dead in sins, but he has quickened us together with Christ, for by grace are you saved. And Christian, you say, well, I'm so messed up, I'm so, I'm so fouled up, I'm so far into sin, I can't see straight. I want you to know 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is still in the book. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What he will do, if we will, instead of trying to sit there and just lay there and say, well, I'm just going to stay in this mess. I'm just going to stay where I am. I'm not going to worry about anything. I'm just going to sit here and see if it'll, it'll all blow over. Instead of doing that, if you will say, I want to reach out to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is where my new life comes from. If you're not saved this morning, if you are a sinner that is lost in sin and know that heaven is not your home, but you have an eternal destiny in hell, if that's who you are this morning, you reach out to him and he will give you eternal life. You will have life that will never end. He even says it's not just life eternal, but it's life abundant. Life, even abundant life he will give to you. But you must reach out to him. You must call out to him. If you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Now, Christian... You also need to call upon the name of the Lord. I believe that one of the biggest problems that we have as believers in doing any kind of, having any kind of growth in our Christian life is that we will sin and we'll just stay there. We'll do the best we can. We'll say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to not be like that anymore. I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to make sure that nobody ever finds out about that. I'm going to kind of box that off. I'm going to wall that off, and I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to keep that, that little part of my life over here. And from time to time, you might step over there, and you might, oh, man, I can't believe I did that. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to do better now. Do better. Do better. Do better. Now, again, none of y'all have to say amen, and if it, if it hurts you, go ahead and say ouch, whatever. I can just tell you I'm giving you Matthew Tilly's experience on this thing. Some of y'all may not know what I'm talking about, and again, I'll just say bless you. But for the rest of us, this is where we go, and we say, well, I'm just going to not do this anymore. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be strong. Be strong. You need to get new life, new power that you don't have. If I were to depend on my flesh to accomplish that, all I'm going to do is get myself deeper and deeper in the hole. All I'm going to do is make a bigger and bigger mess out of the thing. All I'm going to do is frustrate myself and furthermore make no progress in my spiritual life because I'm sitting there dead practically 
Yes, I'm in Christ. I've not lost my salvation. Don't get any of that out of what I said. But I am saying what you are going to be doing is you're going to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is supposed to be a holy temple. Brother Mark mentioned this in, in Sunday in the opening assembly this morning that we've been made holy so the, the Holy Spirit could take up residence. But I want to go one further to say to you that yes, we have been made holy that the Holy Spirit takes up residence. But when this body, when this flesh gets out of control and it gets sinful, there's a, there's a reason that you feel uncomfortable if you're a Christian. In fact, it's a little worse than when we don't feel uncomfortable because that Holy Spirit is telling you, hey, I'm supposed to be in a holy place. And it ain't holy around here no more. He's pushing you, prompting you. You need to get back in touch with the Savior. You need to reach out to Him. You need to touch Him. Just the hem of His garment. He'll take care of the rest of it. But you get a hold of Him and say, Lord, if you don't fix this, I can't keep it together anymore. I would throw me away if it was up to me. I've tried everything I can do and it's not working. I need your life. He says He'll give you new life. He always, he will, he will never throw you away. He's always going to be there. He's never going to give up on you, but he will always give you new life. Look at what happens to this man after he's revived. He stood up on his feet. Now, if anybody had been around them that afternoon, <laughs> could you imagine that? They just, they just watched. I can imagine like a little boy that's been playing outside, you know. And he's just watching this stuff happening. And then people throw that body in there. And oh, wow, what just happened? And then he sees that body kind of make another roll, roll. Touch that sarcophagus. He just stands up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, no, that poor little fellow, <laughs> he wouldn't have known what to think. I know I wouldn't have known what to think. I would have been, and I couldn't tell nobody because everybody would say I was crazy. <laughs> Somebody told the story, though, because it's in the Word of God. But the point is, he's not this man, this, this man that was hastily buried. He's not alive and wounded. He's standing up. He has new direction, new power in his life. The power of God not only re revives him, but it actually gives him the power to get on his feet, get his legs underneath him, and be able to start moving in some direction. Maybe, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but maybe he's able to get in the fight against the Moabites. I mean, he definitely could have done that. It's definitely possible. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us. I'm speculating, to be fair. But he's able to get up. God promised in verse 23, I told you that, he says, go back to that, he says, and the Lord was gracious unto them and had compassion on them and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he would not destroy them, neither would he cast them from his presence as yet. God's not just promising the survival of Israel, he's promising an abundance, he's promising them to be in his presence to be able to have his power he is changing them he goes to abraham and says in, in in genesis chapter 12 he's going to make a great nation he's going to bless them make his name great make now shall be a blessing and i will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed are you hearing what god's saying he's not simply saying israel i'm going to make sure you still exist He's not going to say, I'm, I'm just going to make sure that you're still there. He says, I'm going to make you a blessing. And they can't be a blessing 
when they've got enemies bearing down on them all the time. They can't be a blessing when they're worshiping false gods. They can't do any of those things. He says, I'm going to give you life. He gives it to this man. He gives them as an example, a representation of Israel. He gives them life, but he gives it to them more abundantly. I've come that they might have life, Jesus says, and that they might have it more abundantly. God's not going to leave you in your death, and he's not going to leave you in your decay. Instead, he does what the psalmist says. He brings you up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, sets your feet on a rock, and establishes your goings. That's what he does. That's what he does. I think sometimes we, we, we get this false sense of what, what being a Christian means, and I want to I try to clarify it. I know the one sermon will never do something, undo some of the damage that has been done over the years for some of y'all, but let me just try a little bit. Being saved is not simply praying a prayer and then going on about your life like you always did. Now, do you need to pray a prayer? Absolutely. That's how I got saved. Lord, save me. But that prayer on its own is not some ticket to heaven. You need Jesus to save you. And when Jesus saves you, you know what he does? He doesn't leave you in your mess. He takes you out of that. He puts you in a new direction. He changes your life. He will not leave you in that death, and he will not leave you in that decay. I'm telling that to you if you're, if you're not a believer this morning, if Jesus is not your Savior, if heaven is not your home, if you know that if you were to die right now that you would go to hell, if you know that's who you are this morning, I want you to know for a fact that God will not leave you in that condition. If you will just reach out and just touch him and just say, Lord, I need you. I need something from you. He's promised to save you, to save you from your sins, to change your direction, to change your heart to wash those sins away from you, but to give you a new desire. He's, I've already mentioned he's going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to come in and take up residence, and he's going to be prompting you, giving you direction. He's going to say, no, don't do that. He's going to say, yes, do more of that. He's going to encourage you to, to be loving, to, to go and meet with God, fellow believers. He's going to encourage you to get into your word, uh, the word of God. He's going to encourage you to stop doing those things that you know better than to do. He's going to encourage you to stop going to those places that you know better than to go. He's not going to leave you in your death and decay, and he won't leave you without direction. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. He will give you a light to show you which way to go. What is that light? Well, the psalmist said, it's thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And if you've, if you've ever read this Bible before, I know I have. I've read it. Sometimes I'm looking at it and say, what in the world is it talking about? Because I've not reached out and touched the hem of his garment and said, Lord, I don't know which way to go. I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, but it ain't making sense to me. I don't know what to do. He's going to give you direction. He's going to get you back up on your feet. He's not going to leave you laying in the pit and you're alive, fully alive, but you can't do anything about it. No, he's going to get you going where you need to be going. He's going to put you on the right path. But what you've got to do, and every person in this room has got to do this, you've got to get in touch with the Lord. You've got to reach out. You've got to touch him because it is only by making contact with God that you're going to have that new life. It is only by making contact with God that you're going to get that direction. He's not giving up on you. Here's where your problem is. Some of y'all have given up on God. Some of y'all have already checked him off 
You're doing the things that are required of you, and we all look at you and say, yep, that's a pretty good gal, that's a pretty good guy. And you say, you know what, I'm going to do the right thing, so everybody thinks that of me, but I'm not really interested in going any further. And I want to tell you all as plainly and as compassionately as I know how, I fear for your souls. If you're able to do that, you may say, well, I'm, I'm going to heaven. I've confessed my sins. I believe in Jesus, all the things. I've done all that. I told you, that prayer ain't getting you nowhere. You need to touch God. You need to get in touch with God. You need to actually grab a hold of him and say, if you don't save me, Lord, I ain't getting saved. You don't change me, Lord, I'm not changing. If you don't forgive me, Lord, I'm not for getting forgiven. And until you're ready to do that, you're going to be just like this dead man laying in the bottom of a sepulcher, doing nothing, cast off to the side. Everyone else in your life may well have given up on you, but God hasn't. He's right here. He'll be there all the time. He'll be there patiently waiting for you. And I believe that he's orchestrated everything in your life. Call me crazy, but I really believe this. I believe that every moment, a moment like this, every moment of our lives, God has orchestrated everything leading up to that point. I believe that y'all are sitting in this church right now, that God directed me to preach this sermon series and this particular message following this Sunday so that you, every person in here, could hear it. I believe that. He's orchestrated so you could hear this call to believe on him if you're not a Christian. He's orchestrated so that you would be reminded if you're a Christian that's in despair and depression, so be reminded, you know what? He's here for you. He's orchestrated so you would be encouraged to reach out to him. He's here. He's the more perfect prophet that will actually save you. He's the more perfect king who lived for you. He's gracious, he's compassionate, he's caring, he's not going to destroy you. He's not going to throw you away. He's not done with you yet.